I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Welcome to this week's special episode of In AI We Trust. Today, we are honored to be joined by Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents California's 36th Congressional District. Representative Liu is currently serving in his fifth term and was elected the president of the Democratic freshman class by his colleagues during his first term. And this term, he was elected vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus. He serves on several critical committees, and I would argue all of them are relevant to this discussion, including the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Judiciary Committee, and Science, Space, and Technology Committee. He's taken a leadership role in Congress on a number of vital AI policy issues, including submitting a bill written entirely by ChatGPT last March and the bipartisan measure entitled Block Nuclear Launch by Autonomous Artificial Intelligence Act with his fellow members, Ken Buck of Colorado and Don Beyer of Virginia. Congressman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Honored to be on the show. So you are one of the very few members of Congress who has a computer science degree. You are ready for this discussion in Congress today and on the podcast. And you've been instrumental in guiding your colleagues in Congress to help them understand and begin to grapple with artificial intelligence and what policy measures are required. But let's take a step back first and tell us, when did you first become interested in artificial intelligence? I'm a recovering computer science major, so I've always been familiar with the field of AI, and I'm super excited about what we saw last year, which was a qualitative leap forward in AI technology with the public release of generative AI, such as ChatGPT, and that was followed by Microsoft's Bing and Google's Bard, and you're seeing these large language models give individual people huge access to very expensive AI technology in a way never done before. Absolutely. So it's clear, as you note, that AI has become increasingly of great interest in the general public and in Congress. Last week alone, there were a series of AI hearings in the various committees that you and your colleagues held, and the Senate launched the AI Insight Forum. The White House has also continued to prioritize AI developments, including securing another round of voluntary commitments from tech companies just last week. So my question to you is, are we making progress? Are the efforts underway in Congress on track and sufficient? And bottom line, what would you like to see happen this year with regard to AI policy in Congress? I think it's Fantastic that the White House has gotten private sector companies to make voluntary commitments. And in Congress, we're trying to make sure that all the members of Congress at least can start from a basic starting point of knowledge about AI. I'm the vice chair of the Democratic Caucus in House leadership, and I've worked with the Republican vice chair to have these programs where members of Congress can come on a bipartisan basis and hear from an AI speaker and then ask questions. And I want to make sure that the American people also have some knowledge about AI. And so I recommend that folks use it, read up on it, and ask folks questions about it, because it's going to transform the world. 
Yes. Well, thank you for clarifying. We all have homework to do. We all need to start using this. And, and we've seen it across industry that AI and, and generative AI applications have had a huge uptake, but we all have a role to play in engaging in AI, not necessarily all being computer scientists like you, but really we can't leave anyone behind in making sure that they're taking advantage of this innovation. Absolutely. And I just do want to make a point that AI has been with us for quite a while. The generative AI aspect that's new, that's what's caused me to focus on this. So for example, in the past, AI was largely pattern recognition. And if you gave this AI algorithm a million pictures of dogs, it would figure out after a while what's a dog and what's not a dog. The difference now is you can say dog to a generative AI large language model, and it gives you 57 images of dogs, and then writes an entire essay on the importance of dogs to human civilization. So that is the difference. And that's what can cause, I think, a lot of disruptions in society that I think ultimately will mostly move society forward. Yeah, well, it sounds like you are like us, net positive on AI. But as you say, there will certainly be disruptions. We can talk about that in so many different places. And one is obviously in the intellectual property space. You sit on the House Judiciary Subcommittee on IP and the Internet, and we know that copyright and the disruptions in that space are top of mind. So one question for you is, do you think that our copyright laws are able to withstand this disruption? Do we need to think about new laws in this space? And is generative AI really taking our IP understanding to levels that it's it's not prepared to currently? Uh, that is a, a great question. I did have the honor of meeting with the Register of Copyrights, and I know that she's been thinking about these issues quite deeply. I think the best answer right now is we don't know. Uh, there is so much litigation happening. I think in the first instance, courts will be making decisions and interpreting the existing laws. And maybe that's enough. And maybe the existing laws are enough. And maybe they're not. But I think we're going to have to give some time for these cases to go through the system and for different people to weigh in and see if the existing laws are enough to protect creators' works and also allow AI to innovate. And if it turns out that we need additional laws, then I know that we're going to look at it deeply in the Judiciary Committee and the IP subcommittee in which I sit. I think it's just a little early now to know exactly what the new paradigm might be because of how quickly AI is moving and all the different use cases that we're seeing. That's really helpful. Thank you. And you raised such an interesting point that this is all going to be litigated and the courts will be telling us a lot of what we're equipped to handle, where our laws are playing out, how our interpretation of copyright law and otherwise will be interpreted when hit with generative AI and other new questions. I'll just give you one example. The way these large language models work is they'll train themselves, for example, with the entire internet. Well, it turns out the entire internet also has the copyrighted works of Taylor Swift. So what happens if this large language model, then let's say for your personal use, you decide to put in, hey, write me lyrics in the style of Taylor Swift, and it puts out these lyrics, and it's just for you to use them. That's probably maybe not a violation, or maybe that's fair use or so on. But if you then took those lyrics and then decided to show it at your birthday party, and 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 sing them is that okay maybe maybe not but what if you then try to commercialize those lyrics is that fair use and 
It probably isn't, but these are very factual determinations. So I think a lot of these cases will actually be heavily dependent on the exact context and exact scenario. Now, it's so important that you help us remember that this is all use case specific and whose birthday party is it? You know, if, if it's Rihanna's, that's very different than if I'm singing it with my family. So, right. And, and our laws arguably are equipped to handle to some extent, these novel questions and these context use specific queries, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we go with this. And relatedly, you have used chat GPT, as we noted at the top, uh, to show people, to not just tell, but show people some of the ways that it is really changing our paradigm and, and adding perhaps utility and, and value and, and sometimes not. So you published an op-ed that everyone should check out that you relied on to some extent with chat GPT, as well as the non-binding measure that you introduced in Congress that was written by ChatGPT. And I understand you did that to raise awareness. Thank you for doing that and showing people what it was. So can you explain for those who have not read your op-ed, what you see as the importance of ChatGPT in this moment? And can we expect to see more of this going forward, the chat and being writing legislation? And is this problematic? For decades, I've been trying to get an op-ed published in New York Times, never happened. And then, you know, I had ChatGPT write the first paragraph of op-ed and look, I got published in New York Times. So pretty amazing, right? Well, ChatGPT in large language models, to me, did show a qualitative leap forward in AI technology. When I was being my computer science major, there were these folks working on neural networks, and we thought, Oh, it's never going to work. It's just pie in the sky stuff. They were basically saying, we're going to you know, create these systems that operate and think like human beings. And we thought that would never happen. Well, about 10, 15 years ago, it started to happen. And that's why voice recognition is amazing. Facial recognition is amazing. Uh, when you call an airline's uh, phone number, no matter what accent you use or how you store your words, it magically understands what flight you want to book. But a lot of that, again, was based on pattern recognition. When I first went on ChatGPT and saw its ability to create content, uh, that was pretty amazing. And I realized then that this was going to be quite transformative for society. And I wanted society to be prepared for it. It's going to really cause a lot of professions to become more efficient, but that could also result in job disruptions, job losses, and the creation of new jobs. And I just wanted to raise the flag that, hey, this is some pretty disruptive technology. It could also cause problems, for example, in the area of weapons of mass destruction. And that's why I introduced a bill on a bipartisan basis that basically says, no matter how amazing AI technology gets, we're never ever going to let it launch a nuclear weapon by itself. There always has to be a human in the loop. Thank you for bringing that up. Such an important piece of legislation, helping us establish where there are spaces where AI should not go, where we need to make sure that humans remain in the lead. And the other thing that is really commendable about this bill is that it's bipartisan and bicameral, something that I know you strive to do. And, and it's so nice to know that there are areas where people who are committed to it can make sure to be bipartisan whenever possible. So Tell us, why is it the moment for that bill now? Um, and, and how do you think we deal with the fact that we're not the only nuclear power and we need to make sure others follow your lead in, in, in passing such legislation? 
let me tell you how I think about AI from the perspective of a lawmaker. Best analogy is two bodies of water. You got a large ocean of AI and then a small lake of AI. And large ocean is all the AI we don't care about. So if you're Smart Toaster, for example, has a preference for wheat toast over bagels. We don't care about that. And so most of AI, we're just not going to regulate. In this small lake of AI is AI that we are going to regulate. And I think there's sort of three buckets why we want to do that. The first is AI that can, in fact, destroy the world. And any AI related to weapons of mass destruction, whether it's nuclear weapons or an AI algorithm making it easier, for example, for terrorists to know how to produce a lethal virus. All of those issues, I think we need to regulate and look at. The second bucket is AI that isn't going to destroy the world, but can kill people individually. So if your laptop malfunctions, it's not going 45 miles per hour. But if the AI in a moving vehicle malfunctions, it can kill people, it has killed people, and it's going to kill people in the future. Turns out there's lots of AI in moving objects planes, trains, automobiles. I think we need to have more regulators trained on AI and really cognizant of the unique aspects of AI in all these moving objects. And then the last bucket is really the hardest, which is AI that can produce some sort of harm, such as AI in hiring algorithms, for example, that might have bias towards certain races or a gender bias, or AI in facial recognition technology, which right now is less accurate for people with darker skin. That's a much harder bucket to deal with. And that's why we should have a national AI commission that looks at it with lots of experts weighing in and then making recommendations to Congress as to how we should go forward. Well, it's very helpful to hear your interpretation of how you categorize these risks. You know, I think so many people are saying which need to be regulated. And it sounds like what we're hearing from you is they really all need to be addressed just with different levels of precaution and oversight. That is correct. And I certainly think the AI in terms of weapons of mass destruction, bioweapons, anything that can cause a, a lot of harm to a lot of people, we should address first. I also do include in that last bucket I was talking about harm that doesn't really kill you, but can harm society. I include in there unfair monetization, which is something that you brought up earlier in terms of the IP field. I do think we need to make sure that creators and other folks do continue to be fairly compensated for their creations and how do we strike that balance and allow AI to continue to innovate? How do we? Very good question. And I'm glad it's you who will be helping to answer this question. And you mentioned this National Commission, another piece of legislation that you introduced that, again, bipartisan, bicameral support that you co-authored with Representatives Buck, Eshu, and Senator Schatz. Uh, tell us, what broad topics do you intend for such a commission to cover? Why is this necessary now? One reason is it's fully transparent. So I think it's great that the U.S. Senate is looking at all these AI issues and they have these closed door meetings with, you know, technology titans and other folks in AI. And we have no idea what is said in these meetings. So I think it'd be helpful for the American public and for members of Congress to know what information is relied on and getting to the conclusions that you get in terms of how to regulate AI. And so this commission, you'll have experts far smarter than me who will, will be relying on information and disclosing to American public what information they relied on, how they got to the conclusion. So I think transparency is an important factor in how we regulate AI 
there's also trust dents for this. In the military side, there was an AI commission that got pretty good reviews and made some good recommendations, and we adopted some of those recommendations. So this is a civilian version of what we've already done in the past. And then I think it's also helpful to allow some passage of time to occur. I think we can wait too long, and that would be bad. I think we can also regulate too early, because if you were to say, hey, you should regulate AI next week, I don't even know how we would define it because of how quickly generative AI is moving. So this commission does give us some time to see how AI develops, and it requires a set of recommendations six months after the bill is signed into law. Well, you know, you mentioned that so many of your colleagues are becoming more interested, getting more engaged and involved. One quick question I'd love to ask, how do you think they're doing? What kind of grades would you give your colleagues as to how much they're engaging in this topic and, and how much they're prepared to legislate on AI policy? Let me first say that AI is not a human being or sentient. It is a tool. And a tool can be used for good or bad purposes, but it also means that it's not really partisan, right? There's no sort of partisan AI. It's just AI. It's artificial intelligence. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot more bipartisan interests and bipartisan events and bipartisan cooperation. A number of the bills I introduced on AI do have bipartisan support. So I'm hopeful that with AI and other technology, for example, cybersecurity technology, that's gotten bipartisan support in the past. Because again, there's no such thing as a Republican cybersecurity defense or a Democratic cybersecurity offense, right? Just cybersecurity. And same with AI. And I am hopeful we can get bipartisan consensus. I do think we do need to get everybody sort of on the same page. And that's why I've been doing these various programs as vice chair of the caucus to bring in experts and to have members come and hear from the experts. Well, thank you for doing that. Agree. It, it is not a party issue. It shouldn't be. And we're also grateful for your efforts to make sure that we continue to lead in that space. And particularly because, you know, right now to date, all we've been talking about in this conversation is U.S. efforts and mostly focused on the Hill. Obviously, there's efforts across the U.S., across the federal executive and in the states. But we also have a whole globe that's participating in this conversation. I think 37 countries to date have been involved in AI policy implementation of different levels and varieties. So should we be worried about other countries leading on the policy governance in this space? One of the things that we do as lawmakers is we plagiarize. And so I think it's really helpful for Europe to go forward with their AI rules and regulations and laws. And we can see how did that go? Was it good? Was it a disaster? Was it somewhere in between? And if it turned out well, then we will copy what they did. If it was a disaster, then we're not. Or if it turned out well in some sectors, but not in others, then we might you know, take some of what they did. So I think it's actually helpful for lawmakers in the US to see what other jurisdictions are doing and then analyze how did, in fact, those laws and regulations come out in the actual effect? Yeah, that's that's a great way to think of it, that we have this testing ground where we're all participating and learning from one another. And opening the aperture even further, 
as we think about AI guardrails, we know that regulation is only one piece of it. So much of AI is happening in the laboratories of each company, each organization where it is being used, built, deployed. So I know you've given some thought to what a good corporate actor, an organization using AI should be doing to make sure they are responsible, even before the regulation that you're working on comes to bear. So what advice would you have for companies who are currently today adopting AI systems across their enterprise? What should they be doing to ensure that they are getting ahead of where the regulations will ultimately go? How can they be a good, responsible AI actor today? I have two recommendations. The first is to adopt the NIST AI risk management framework. So the National Institute of Standards and Technology came out with a artificial intelligence risk management framework that got really good reviews in both the private and public sector. A lot of that framework is simply forcing the organization to go through a process of thinking about AI. And it forces you to think about various issues that AI raises and how you might address those issues. I wrote a letter uh, to the Biden administration along with Congress members Zoe Lofgren and Haley Stevens asking the Biden administration to adopt the NIST risk management framework. I think it'd be great if corporations also adopted that framework. I think that's a very good starting point. Second recommendation is I would highly recommend having a human in a loop in whatever AI system that you're deploying because at the end of the day, you don't know if AI might just go bonkers on some scenario you never thought of. And you just need a human being, I think, ultimately uh, at the uh, very end that can do a double check on whether the AI system is functioning as it's supposed to function. Great recommendations and very much support and grateful for the letter you put out supporting the NIST risk management framework. At Equal AI, we have created an algorithmic impact assessment tool for companies to use on our website that's based on the NIST framework. We think anything we can do to spread and create greater ways to access that framework, make it more available to more people, and hopefully ultimately have it become a standard in some kind of statement that a company can make to indicate that they are a good AI actor, that they've followed the best practices because they are implementing their risk management framework. That's terrific. <laughs> Thank you. And do you think that there should be some kind of mark of compliance for following the risk management framework? I do. Senator Markey and I introduced the Cyber Shield Act, which was something that was a voluntary certification program so that if a company met those standards, they could put a cyber shield on their product that basically says their product has certain cybersecurity defenses in it. And I think the same can be applied in the field of AI, that if a company meets certain standards in terms of you know, AI not being biased, not having issues in there that could completely cause it to go bonkers and so on, that they can then put some sort of logo or designation on their product or their program saying, hey, this AI algorithm or program met certain voluntary standards. And I think that is something that we should pursue. And my staff is looking at that issue as well. Super interesting. And I think it will be so helpful because how else can consumers know who we can trust? And I love that that makes it a competitive advantage to do the right thing. I think having voluntary certifications is something that can also get bipartisan support. And I also want to note that 
we've had this tradition in the U.S. So, for example, if you go buy a lamp at Target and you bring it home, you don't expect it to catch on fire. And that's because that lamp would have been certified, for, for example, by Underwriters Laboratory, because Target knows that if they get lamps that are certified by this organization, less likely it's going to catch on fire, less likely the customers get angry at them. Yeah, I think you raised such a great point that at the end of the day, it's talking about building trust. We're having systems in place that we need to be able to trust. Most consumers are not going to understand AI. And even if they did, how would they be able to get into the source code or, or really do any testing to make sure that it is safe and that it's made for them? So anything a company can do to self-certify and commit that they have taken the right precautions is really a competitive advantage. It is, although I do want to make the point, because it's interesting you mentioned trust, and it's interesting that we're doing this podcast called In AI We Trust. I actually, at a very fundamental level, want people to not fully trust AI. I do want people to have somewhat of a little bit of skepticism in the AI algorithm. And that's because based on technology, we don't actually know what the AI is doing. We know, for example, that if you give this AI algorithm, right, a million pages of cat, so figure out what's a cat, what's not a cat, but we can't actually tell how it goes from point A to the conclusion. And because of that, maybe this AI algorithm is correct 99.999% of the time, but maybe in this strange word scenario, it goes totally crazy. And so I just want people to not have 100% trust in any AI algorithm. Well, thank you for raising that really important point and underscoring why we have a question mark at the end of our podcast in AI We Trust. It is an open question. It's very helpful to have you weigh in with your appropriate and thoughtful answer. And you're also talking about another point that I think is really significant, which is, you know, we look to precedent, we look to other examples as to how we regulate, how we handle this innovation. And cyber is such a useful, important way to be thinking about how we handle AI, the inherent risks, the things that we can't see and haven't yet envisioned. But there are limitations. We are talking here about an innovation where even those who built it don't know Know its full capacity and outcomes. And so healthy skepticism, it sounds like, is your remedy and an important piece for all of us to keep in mind. Absolutely. And it also goes into how we look at images and videos. For example, some of the videos we see could be deep fakes. Some of the audio recordings that we hear could be fake. So I want people to also not trust everything they see on the internet as well and just do a, a double check and have some healthy skepticism. All right. So we have your guidance. I hope everybody takes their homework assignment to play with AI, to play with ChatGPT and Google Bard and all the others to see how it can help them, but to maintain a skeptical mindset and, and understand that there are limitations and unknowns in the exciting, innovative technology they're dealing with. Thank you. So hate to bring this conversation to a close, but I know we need to let you go get back to all the legislation that you've been talking about and so much more. And we ask each of our guests one final question, which is, if you had one wish, if you had a magic wand where you could achieve any goal you hoped in order to help us recognize and realize responsible AI, what would that wish be? So I, generally, I say peace in the world, but I, I know that's not quite the right answer to the exact question that you asked. I think what I would hope for is that everyone who uses AI uses it for good purposes. 
Now, we know there's going to be bad people out there, but all you can do is uh, hope for the best. I love that. So should we all continue on with our AI journey? We should hope that it's used for the use cases for which it was intended and for its best use, its noble use. Congressman Liu, thank you so much for joining us today and for helping people see some of the deep expertise we have in Congress that's helping us navigate policy at this really exciting, crucial turning point. Thank you. Honored to be on the show. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 